coming back with today's featured entree, Information 1000 KSOO. 444 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. And we are continuing our conversation with Charles K. Luden, poet laureate and musician from Sioux Falls for many years. So we've talked about the 60s and a little bit about the 70s. So, it, but in the, in the, what was it like in the 70s? There was a lot of country music here in the 70s. There was a lot of variety bands. Yeah. I used to get calls from different musicians, band leaders, say, oh, um, our drummer is ill this week. He can't make, make it. You know, can you fill in? And yeah. Which is a great way to learn stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You had to pick it up as you went along. Because right? a lot of different styles of music have the same roots as far as rhythm. Yep. You know, four, yep. four, three, four, that kind of stuff, six, eight time, it's all very similar. Yeah. It's just the attack that's different. So in that time, you saw the rise of the Red Willow Band, the Dry I, Mustard Band, the, uh, not, not Blueberries, uh, what was Charlie Smith's band called? I can't remember now. But a lot of bands that were pretty prolific. and uh, Rocky Mountain Oysters. Rocky Mountain Oyster Band, yeah. It was Friends just, of mine, all of them. Yeah, and mm-hmm. just a lot going on all the time. Uh, what was that atmosphere like? It was a lot of fun. There was most of the music in those days. The in crowd scene was the Stockman's Bar, mm-hmm. and then the Fireside Lounge. And the bands played in rotation. You, they did a week at one, and then a week at the other. And mm-hmm. there was about four or five bands that re- rotate. Zero Ted um, was one of them. Um, Red Willow, of course. Um, Blueberry Buckle. That's R&B what I was su- thinking. R&B Blueberry su- Buckle. R and B Supply. Yeah. And one of my favorite names was Fast Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> But w- and then uh, from a poetry standpoint, what were you doing at this time? I mean, how was that? What was that culture like? Well, I was always from the do-it-yourself school, and I think living in this part of the country at that time, you had to do that because nobody was going to do it for you. Mm-hmm. So in college, I actually started doing um, offset press or mimeographed booklets of my poetry and other people's poetry. Me and a friend of mine, Larry Zareth, had a little magazine called Zebra Breath Journal. We did four episodes of that. Um, the last one we did was when I was living in Oakland, California, San Francisco in 71, 72. But anyway, um, so I just started getting involved with that when I was going to Augustana. Yeah. Um, and then after you left Augustana, you graduated and you moved to San Francisco. I did. I went out there to be in a wedding in Fresno, and I babysat my friend's apartment for two weeks, and then after that I drove up to San Francisco, because I always wanted to be in San Francisco because of the music scene at that time. It was very vibrant. Yep. You know, you had a lot of things happening there. Um, and I pride myself is that I bought a San Francisco journal down in Fresno, wrote down the numbers to call. I drove into San Francisco at rush hour, I had an apartment rented by seven. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, was, I got on a payphone. I called the number. It was turned out to be a rental agency. She says, you're going to have trouble driving here because they're building this underground railroad system called BART. Oh, wow. And it was just a mess. But I didn't know it. And I just drove into town. And, and I took the first place they sent me, which is right on Market Street, about a block down from Bill Graham's office, the Rock and Roll Impresario. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that was a really a awakening for me. Well, and it was, in terms of uh, culture, poetry, uh, writing, it was huge. Yeah. It was the center of the world. It was. And, like, I'm in San Francisco for, like, a month. And I find myself in John Lee Hooker's house. (laughs) 
You know, like, hey, like hey, hey, yeah, hey, I hey. went to see him over in um, Berkeley at a place called the New Monk. And the opening band was a group called, um, oh, they had a name. I remember something about Blue anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, after the show, this gentleman was trying to bum a ride back to San Francisco because I was in Berkeley. And I says, I'll give you a ride. And he was a singer from the front band. And he, and he says, um, okay. And turns out to be Bishop Mayfield, Curtis Mayfield's brother. <laughs> So he starts taking me around the jam sessions in San Francisco, and oh, I meet wow. all these cool guys. And I, yeah, that's amazing. Do you have photos from that era? Uh, poor photos, because yeah. that was the days of the Brownie Starflex cameras, and you had eight shots per roll, oh, and terrible. you had no focus control. And I treasured each shot, so I didn't take so many. But I do have some. Yeah, uh, what's your what's your real uh, when you think back of that time? What's your highlight of those couple of years in San Francisco? Is there a moment where you go, wow, that was nuts? Well, I actually did a reading at Ferlinghetti's Poets Theater. He had the City Lights bookstore, but he also mm-hmm. had the City Lights Poets Theater on Mason Street. And they had open mics on, I think, Monday night, and I wandered down there, and I was nervous, and I had my typewritten manuscript. And I got up and read some poems, and I was kind of amazed because these guys kept calling Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the poet guy. Mm-hmm. Um, Larry. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> Lawrence Ferlinghetti. <laughs> calling him Larry. But anyway, um, and then after I get done reading, this, these guys come and says, you have a really good stage present. We'd like to, you to be in our play. And I would just, I didn't think that would work for me because I have trouble remembering lines. But it turned out that these guys actually had a lot of cred in the underground theater world at that time. And mm-hmm. they had plays produced up and down the West Coast. And, that had to be just, I mean, being behind the scenes, being involved in that as it was growing. Because at that time, uh, City Lights, right? It was Ferlinghetti. Those, that was the like center of a, a, the whole underground culture in, in the United States. Yeah. I used to walk around San Francisco because San Francisco is a town for walking. Yeah. And it's not much bigger footprint than Sioux Falls, no. actually. It's square miles. Um, I walked in the rain one time for like three miles, got caught in a downpour. But anyway, um, I used to see these same person walking around, and he would, um, we got to, we'd just say hi to each other, because we, and I think it was Richard Brodigan, actually, because he's a very tall guy with that kind of hat and long flowing brownish hair, mm-hmm. and he was living out there at that time, and I'm not sure it was him, but it sure looked like him. Yeah. So... We're going to jump forward a little bit here because I want you to talk just a little bit about No Direction. We've been talking a lot about poetry, and you've got a reading coming up with the JAS Quintet at Leonardo's on November 2nd at the, in the Washington Pavilion. That's at 730. Uh, but so the way I really came in contact with you was with No Direction, which was Sioux Falls' only punk band at that time. Well, there might have been some other words around, but I didn't know about them. How did you end up in No Direction? Well, blame Frank Cato for that. Our old friend used yeah. to be the crowbar bartender. Right. And he knew Rich and um, Rich, Rich Show and yeah. Rick Smith. And they were looking for a drummer because they had one that quit. And um, I actually saw them play at the old bar right north or west of um, City Hall. The Night Hall? Mm-hmm. They played there one time and with it, and they had a a baby doll strung from his neck hanging from above the stage, you know, and I was there with a girlfriend. And, oh, this is kind of cool. And then 
you know, a couple of years later, I'm playing with these guys. Yeah. You know? So what what year did No Direction actually come together? Um, I was with them, 82, 1982. And you guys did pretty well. We did. We lasted seven years. Yeah. And uh, two two records. And uh, then three. And then the, isn't then the, right, the We did three, three albums. Yeah. Well, the tapes the last, you know. Yeah. So it, that first album, it's white, and it's got... Gray, actually. Is it gray? Light gray. Light gray with the... With titles such as uh, Reaganomics, right? Wasn't that Correct. On there? Yeah, that was their hit single, if you want to call it that. I've actually talked to people that heard that on the radio in Washington, D.C. and various places. That album actually went to number one in a station in Richmond, Virginia. Really? That yes. was that stuff for me, because I could go see it. I first saw you guys playing at Terrace Park Bandshell. I must have been like um, 85, 86, whenever that was. And it was just like, wow, this is real. It was cool. It what, was. So what are the, some of the other highlights? I, I should have had a cut. Oh, well. What, are, what other songs were on that record? It wasn't uh, Where's the Beach on there? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. They were, that was good stuff. That was actually our first, our 45, only 45 was Reaganomics on the A side and Where's the Beach on the, on the B side. Yeah. And so uh, did you enjoy being in a punk band? You'd been in so many different bands up till then. I always loved rock and roll. Yeah. And um, a lot of the people in the punk movement were s- usually somewhat older than you might think they were. A lot of mm-hmm. them got started kind of back in the 60s and early 70s. It just took them a long time to to get going. Yeah. Not not always, but sometimes, you know. And, of course, it was raw, raw. And it was a kind of a throwback to some of the garage rock, basically. Yeah. And you were, at that point, uh, quite a bit older than yeah, Rick and Rich. Yeah, I was ten, 10 years older than Rich. And uh, how did, uh, what was that like to be playing with these? It was great, actually. Um, yeah. We played off each other really well. We came up with more than one or two new tunes almost weekly. A lot of nonverbal communication. We just start playing. Mm-hmm. And whatever happened, happened. And you toured a lot. Well, we didn't tour so much as played a lot. I played mean, a lot, yeah. You know, we played in Minneapolis a, a few times, in Omaha a few times. But, um, we all had jobs. So yeah. yeah, right. It um, was never a full-time deal. No, it, and if somebody would have given us a hundred grand and told us to go make it, it might have worked out. But it's there's no money really in, no. in music, especially in that time. It was tough because just booking and communication was difficult. Yes, yes, yeah. You had to be on the phones. There was no internet. Right. You had to do the legwork. And you guys got a very the thing I'll always remember is the the trouser press. Oh, yeah, sure. Which yes. was a huge influential uh, magazine at the time. And you got a very favorable review in there. And, and what's interesting, deal. we put an ad in there for our 45, and then they gave the album, I think, a little review. But anyway, we got mail. Oh, got really? Still the rock and roll kids write letters and yeah. send postcards. Today, you don't do that so much because you've got the internet. But at the same time, like when Vesta Venus came out, I put an ad in the Paris Review on their 100th issue. I don't think I got one piece of mail from it. Right, but the little note in the trouser press would get the box flooded, and also the radio station would send you playlists, and they oh, had wow. their own little group. Radio was a different world then too. So it it was yeah. yes, that was yeah. Um, we're going to come back in just a moment. I think we might have a minute or two left, and we're going to finish up here with Chuck Luden. This is the Patrick Lally Show on Information One Thousand KSOO. Pop in the earbuds with our free radio.